Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Thank you. Good morning. How are you all doing? David is very well. Good. Um, fantastic. That's what I like to hear. Uh, it's great to be with you, and it's a privilege to be speaking today on this day of celebration. I hope that all you other parents who've had your children dedicated really enjoyed that precious moment on the stage, because now I have the microphone, and I have a 30-minute slideshow of my daughter. Next slide. <clears throat> Sit back. Relax. <laughs> I heard a couple of R's, a couple of laughs, and then some gnashing of teeth from other parents. Don't worry, I'm not actually going to do that, but leave it up for a couple of minutes because, you know, she brings more cuteness to the stage than I can. Um, so I am uh, seven months into parenting. Um, it's going well so far. Thanks for asking. And um, it's, uh, I, I have made the odd mistake. Um, I think probably one which I would consider was a major parenting fail, a severe lapse of judgment. And it happened on day one of all days. And it had to do with the choosing of a name. Um, not, not my daughter's name, actually. The name of this little fella here. See, this is the first toy that I bought for Jesse. I thought it was a nice, kind of cute, cuddly, lovely little fluffy elephant. And I thought it should have a fun name. On reflection, Helen and Keys are approach is quite good because Jojo the elephant would sound nice. I thought it would be amusing to call it Donald Trunk. (laughs) (laughs) Which seven months ago seemed like a very funny idea. I would have taken that applause. Now I'm slightly worried it's going to lead to some awkward conversations, particularly when Jesse learns to say, I love Donald Trunk. (laughs) So fluffy. As if having the surname Thatcher didn't already put me in a particular (laughs) political ballpark. But there we go. Um, Aside from that, all is going well, I think, and um, I would like to tell you a couple of stories this morning, and we're going to, actually, we're going to come back to that one from Luke 15 in just a moment. I want to start with a story that is a favorite in the, just stand up, Donald, uh, I'm a favorite in the Thatcher household, and it is a story called Dear Zoo. Um, how many parents here know this story, Dear Zoo? None. No. Oh, a few. Yeah, great. Lots, I'm sure lots of parents know this story, Dear Zoo. It is a literary classic. If you don't know the story, essentially it's, um, it goes something like this. The main protagonist of the story is a small child. Don't know if it's a boy or a girl. Presumably that's left ambiguous. So the reader can insert his or her daughter or son into the story and you know, explore the narrative arc. Essentially, the child writes to the zoo asking for the zoo to send him or her a pet. Now, before I read this story, I didn't know you could do that. In my naivety, I assumed that zookeepers had better things to do with their time than send out wild animals to children who politely request. But apparently not, because the child writes and writes to the zoo to send them a pet, and they send an elephant, the obvious choice for a first pet. Sadly, however, this elephant is too big, and so the child reluctantly sends it back to the zoo. Undeterred, then they think a little bit further. They then send a second pet, which is, parents? A giraffe. A giraffe. Well done. Yes, one of you got it right. Round of applause for that man. And the rest of you need to read more books to your kids. <laughs> they send a giraffe, yeah. Because when the elephant was too big, they thought it would make sense to send something that's on average double the height of an elephant. 
insane. So they send that back, and then you get this whole sequence of animals being sent, but none of them are quite right. So, oh, here you go. Let's test my memory. So the next one is uh, a lion, but that's too fierce. And then it's a camel, but it's too grumpy. And then it's a snake, but it's too scary. Then it's a monkey, but it's too naughty. Then it's a frog, but it's too jumpy. And finally, you get to the last page of the book, and it says, so they thought very hard. And I'm like, if you'd thought very hard early on, <laughs> you could have saved yourself a lot of hassle and a lot of postage. But, you know, better late than never. They thought very hard and they sent a puppy. It's this cute little puppy, kind of tongue out, wagging its tail. It says, he was perfect. I kept him. Heartwarming end to the story. Now, we read this story to Jessie all the time. It was given to us as a gift. She loves this story, particularly because I do great animal impressions, which I'm not going to replicate now. Um, but Barry will happily do that at the end of the service. Just go and talk to him um, as he is dancing. Um, so you, I was reading this story to Jessie. No idea where it was. Well, I had a vague idea where it was going to go. But reading the story, I wrote to the zoo, send me a pet. They sent me an elephant. It's too big. Send it back. It sent me a giraffe. He was too tall. And going through, get to the final page, this heartwarming page. So they fought very hard and they sent me a puppy. He was perfect. I kept him. And I pointed at Jessie and I went, just like you. And in an instant, Helen went, no. <laughs> I was like, so what? Are we not planning to keep her? <laughs> she says, of course we're planning to keep her. But we don't keep her because she's perfect. We don't love her because she's perfect. We love her because we are her parents and she is our daughter. We love her whatever. Of course she was right. <laughs> and of course I wasn't actually even intending to communicate to Jessie that you need to be careful, you know, perfect, otherwise you may be in trouble. That wasn't in my mind at all. I just said something that felt like a cute thing to say in the moment. But in a weird kind of way, I think that message, you need to be perfect in order for you to be loved, accepted, kept, is a message the church often does communicate through our words and through our actions. And it is that very misunderstanding about the nature of love and the prerequisite of perfection to experience love that is at the heart of the passage in Luke chapter 15 that we heard read earlier. Just to recap. In this story, you've got a bunch of people called the Pharisees who see Jesus having lunch with some friends and they criticize him for it. They look over at him and they say, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, to explain the context, the Pharisees were some of the religious leaders of the day, and they were particularly strict about religious adherence, adherence to the law. In fact, they took all the laws of the Old Testament and piled a whole load of other laws on top of it. You just can't get enough laws. And these guys were known for their strict interpretation of the law. And they had very clear ideas of who was good and who was not, who was clean, who was unclean, who was worthy, who was unworthy. They literally kept lists and were checking them twice to find out who was moral and immoral. And so they have these lists and, and they look at the, the naughty list as it were. And they're like, how come Jesus is eating with people on that list? That's not what you were meant to do. And the reason they got so uptight about it was not just that Jesus was hanging out with the wrong crowd, but that he was eating with them. And the Middle Eastern culture of Jesus' day, actually like today, eating with someone was a powerful thing to do because a meal is more than a meal. If you eat with someone, if you share a meal or a table with someone, it says that you are accepting them, welcoming them as your friends. And the Pharisees would never do that with anyone they considered to be less pure than themselves. Sure, they might feed them as an act of charity, but they would never serve, they would never share a table with them. And so they see Jesus and they think, this guy is compromising himself by mixing with these other people. And so the message communicated by their actions is, in effect, if you're perfect, we'll accept you. 
if you're perfect, we will love you and welcome you. And the Pharisees' idea was rooted in the way that they saw and thought of God. You see, they thought of God as what we might call a perfectionist God. Their view of God was one who was primarily to be thought of as a judge, who had strict ideas of who was in, who was out, who was clean, who was unclean, who was worthy, who was unworthy. A God who seemed to value laws over people. Their view of this perfectionist God was a God who stands at a distance, who would never ever approach someone they would consider a sinner for fear that they might somehow contaminate him. The perfectionist God judges from afar. This God demands perfection as a prerequisite for love. Sure, if someone wanted to clean up their act and do all the right things and pay the right taxes and make the right sacrifices and keep the right laws, then maybe they'd be acceptable to this kind of God. But before that, they were considered lost. And in their way of thinking, lost meant unlovable. You couldn't approach this kind of God. And when you read about the Pharisees, you think, hang on a second, this God seems to look somewhat like you, <laughs> somewhat like the way you interact with people. I think this idea of the perfectionist God is one you do hear quite a lot, you encounter quite a lot in this world. And if you hear that depiction of God and you think, I can't ever believe in a God like that. Actually, I don't believe in a God like that. I think this is an entirely incorrect way of thinking about God. The perfectionist God seems to look suspiciously like the Pharisees themselves. The French philosopher Voltaire famously said this, In the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since, man has been trying to repay the favor. I like that way of thinking. In a sense, he's saying, many of us, if left to our own imaginations, we tend to imagine that God looks something like us. I don't know if you've ever had this experience of hearing someone describe God and you think, hang on a second, your view of God seems very similar to you, suspiciously similar to you. This God seems to like the same things you like, value the same things you value, vote the same way you vote, hate the same people you hate. Is it possible that you've actually created this idea of a God in your own image? It seems that that's what the Pharisees are doing. And Jesus, hearing this depiction of a God who stands at a distance, he says, no, you have got it entirely wrong. And he tells a story to show us what God is really like. And in Jesus' story, in Jesus' reading of what God is like, he depicts him more as what we might call a pursuing God. He says this, Suppose you've got 100 sheep and 99 of them are fine. One of them goes off and gets lost. Won't you leave the 99 and go and find the one? And I hear that and I think, 99 sheep ain't bad. You know, I, I probably could do without one, which just proves that I'm not qualified to be God, in case you were one worried about that. <laughs> one person laughed, you know, clearly not qualified to be God. I think very differently to God or God thinks very differently to me. I'd probably go, 99 ain't bad. God is not satisfied, according to Jesus, with 99. God pursues every last sheep. God's love is so extravagant that rather than him being thought primarily as a judge, he's described as a good shepherd who cares deeply for his sheep. Rather than it being the God of the Pharisees who stands at a distance and daren't get close to anyone who might contaminate him, this God draws close, even eating with those who are on the unworthy list. This God doesn't demand perfection before you're worthy of love. He loves the imperfect and allows his love to transform people. 
For the pursuing God, lust, lost doesn't mean unlovable. Lost means loved. And Jesus depicts God like this shepherd who leaves the 99 and pursues the one out into the open country. And that's actually quite a vivid image when you think about it. I don't know what comes to mind when you think of shepherds and open country. I grew up in Kent, uh, so the kind of view I have in mind is this, sort of beautiful green pastures. Uh, When I think of a shepherd, I think of a kind of young guy in tweed and a flat cap and looking like a member of Mumford and Sons. That's kind of what I've got in my mind. And so I think of a shepherd going out into the open country. I think that doesn't seem too bad. I mean, like how much danger can the sheep really be in? Just sort of wandering, probably just sat down behind a bush basking in the sun, except I'm from Kent so basking in the rain, but you know, it's, it feels like a nice kind of idea. Actually, this wasn't what the open country was like at all in Jesus' neck of the woods. This is what it looked like. Next slide. This is the open country of Israel. It is not very green. It's not very luscious. It's not a very nice place to be. It is hard, dry, arid ground, not a lot of water, not a lot of security. If you lost a sheep, you'd probably just consider them lost. You wouldn't go chasing out into this kind of terrain because actually when it gets dark, it gets really dangerous. Predators who would eat the sheep and a shepherd if they got a chance, robbers, bandits. This was a dangerous place to be. So when Jesus says, imagine you've got a hundred sheep and you lose one, God will pursue the one out into the open country. He means this. Did those feet in ancient times walk upon England's mountain green? No, they walked upon this. God risked his life. God is like a God who risks his life to pursue the one lost sheep. Why? Because lost means loved. And what does God do in the story when he finds the sheep? When he finds the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Notice how all the activity comes from God's end. All the impetus is on him, not on the sheep. God doesn't find the sheep and go, What on earth were you doing? Why did you come out here? I'm sorry, I'm just berating you like a sheep. It's fine. It's... um, Okay, I'll keep going. Why? What are you doing? <laughs> Sheep don't speak back. <laughs> if you're going to do it, you've got to at least bleat. But there we go. God doesn't... I'm going to ignore you. God doesn't berate the sheep. God doesn't even turn the sheep around and say, well, there you go. That's the path. Now it's up to you. Like I've done my bit. Over to you. You clean yourself up. You get yourself home. No, what does he do? He bends down. He picks up the sheep. He puts it on his shoulders. He carries it through that rocky terrain back to the security of the flock. And then what does he do? As if that's not enough that he goes, now I've got my hundred sheep. He gets everyone and he says, now you come and rejoice with me. I found this lost sheep. Actually, Jesus goes on to say, it's almost like everyone downs tools in heaven to rejoice with God. He catches everyone up in this joy. God's joy at finding one lost sheep is absolutely amazing. In fact, I hear it and it almost sounds a little bit over the top, which again proves that I am not qualified to be God because he thinks very differently To me, the level of joy that God expresses is amazing. This is no perfectionist God who stands at a distance, who if we manage to make ourselves acceptable enough, then maybe, just maybe, he might love and welcome us. No, this is a God who pursues us relentlessly, putting his life on the line and rejoices when any of us come into relationship with him. And I think the reason why he is so joyous is this. He designed us for relationship with him. 
Actually, the Bible depicts us as having all these longings. I mean, we all know we do. These longings to amount to something. Longings for value and purpose and dignity. A sense of worth. Longing to be accepted, to love and be loved. And rather than these being somehow ungodly longings, actually the Bible says you got those longings because the Creator made you that way. He wired you that way. And He knows that those things will be fulfilled through relationship with Him. The 4th century church father, Augustine, sums up this in a prayer. I quote it all the time because I love it. But He says this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And the sadness of it is that we all have these longings, and many of us, myself included, we try and fulfill those longings in a whole load of ways which rarely, if ever, deliver. And so when the Bible speaks about the word lost, and we think, "Mm, I'm not sure I like that word. Actually, I think this is what it means. To be lost means to fall short of the beautiful fullness of life that God intends for us. To be looking for it in all the wrong places where ultimately we'll find it in relationship with him. And so when God looks down on us and rejoices from anyone coming into relationship with him, the reason his rejoicing is so extravagant is because he deeply loves it when our longings and cravings and desires are fulfilled through relationship with him. I don't know where you're at with the whole idea of God. It may well be that this is your first time in a church at all or in a church like this. It may well be that I've confused you and given you more questions than you had before, in which case I'm sorry. But it may well be that you're here as someone today who has rejected the idea of God entirely, said, I I could never believe in that. My question to you is this. What kind of God have you rejected? Because it's important to know whether we're actually responding to and rejecting God as he really is or a caricature of him. And if you have never heard of God as the pursuing God, if the only picture you have in your mind is a God who stands at afar, who judges from afar, who would never come close, for whom you will never match up, Jesus says that is not God at all. You've missed the true beauty of the God who pursues you, laying his life on the line and rejoices when anyone comes into relationship with him. God is more loving than we could possibly imagine, according to Jesus. Now, of course, you might say, Well, how do I know that Jesus hasn't done that Voltaire thing as well? How do I know that Jesus hasn't just created an idea of God that seems palatable to him? I mean, you read the Gospels and you think, well, Jesus seemed to be a nice kind of guy. And Jesus seemed to hang out with the people that no one else would hang out with. So it kind of makes sense that Jesus may have created this God in his image that does the same. And that's a fair question. It's a fair point. But the way the Bible approaches that question is to flip it on its head, really. And to say, Jesus didn't come claiming to represent God or redefine God or reveal God in some vague abstract sense. Actually, Jesus claimed something huge. He claimed to be God. And the Bible describes Jesus as being the image of the invisible God. That is, God has not left us clueless as to what he is like. Rather, instead of us having to create an idea of God in our own image, he has given us the perfect image in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God stepped into this world. I know that's a huge claim and it's a claim worth exploring. But Jesus himself said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The truest way to know what God is like is to look at the person and life and character and teachings of Jesus Christ. The pursuing God stepped into this world so that we might have relationship with him. Let me try and illustrate this. Can I have the next slide up, please? 
This is the British novelist Dorothy Sayers. Um, the one at the back, not the, not the one at the front. Um, I don't know who the one at the front is, that's slightly peculiar. Uh, presumably the critic that gave her first novel two stars. <laughs> um, uh, no, Dorothy Sayers, um, is a, has anyone read any of her novels? A couple, yeah. Okay, a few of you. So Dorothy Sayers um, was a, a well-known British author who wrote 12 mystery novels between World War I and World War II. And um, they were well-received, but she was a fairly kind of unassuming person. You wouldn't think much of her at all, but she was brilliant. Her writings were brilliant, um, and her mind was brilliant. In fact, she was one of the first women to receive a, a degree from univer uh, the university in Oxford. And she wrote these mystery novels, a dozen of them, and the central character to them is a guy called Peter Whimsey, who is depicted in film like this. And Peter Whimsey was a slightly unusual guy. If you read the stories, he's not the easiest guy to get on with. In fact, lots of people find him impossible to work with. He's a bit unpleasant, a bit sort of uh, arrogant. Um, he's full of character flaws, a flawed and incredibly lonely person. And as the novels go on, a few novels in, a new character comes on the scene. A character, a lady called Harriet Vane. This is a picture of them together. Now, Harriet initially finds Peter very weird, doesn't really want to have anything to do with him. He's a bit unpleasant, a bit hard to get on with. But over time, she softens towards him. She indeed falls in love with him. And later on in the series, she marries the character of Peter Whimsey. And if you read through the series, at that point, there is a real change in this character. That relationship brings out something in him completely different. It's like his redemption through that relationship. He becomes a different person. His character flaws get ironed out. He gets transformed by that loving relationship. And that kind of is a fairly normal plot line, a fairly regular sort of love story with a nice redemptive twist. But actually, readers started to notice a few little details about Harriet Vane that made them wonder if actually there was something else going on here. You see, Harriet Vane was a fairly unassuming lady, but brilliant, with a brilliant mind. For her career, she wrote mystery novels. And she was one of the first women to ever get a degree from the Oxford University. And so readers spotting this started to think, hang on, this looks awfully like Dorothy Sayers looked into this world she had created, saw this lost Peter Whimsey with all his brokenness and flaws and failings, and out of love for him, wrote herself into this world to rescue and redeem him through relationship. That, I think, is a beautiful picture of what Jesus is saying, of what Jesus came to do. The pursuing God, the God of the Bible, doesn't stand at a distance, judging from afar, saying you will never match up. You will never be worthy or acceptable. You'll never be able to come close. No, the God of the Bible, the pursuing God, looks into this world he has made. And seeing these lost sheep who are missing out of the fullness of life for which he had created them, he takes the step of writing himself into the story of the world to rescue and transform us through his love, through relationship. That is a beautiful picture of what Jesus is, what he has come to do. He is God writing himself into our world, the pursuing God here in our midst. Maybe the band can come back up. We are coming to a time of year known as Advent. Christmas is close, worryingly close. <laughs> and this period of Advent is really where we think about this theme, God writing himself into the world, where we reflect on the birth of Jesus, God taking on flesh. These are huge claims. 
I'm aware they are big things to claim. They probably seem barking mad to many of you. But my suggestion is this. If you want to know what God is like, and if maybe you have never heard God depicted like a pursuing God, maybe the only idea you have in your mind is like that perfectionist God who stands at a distance, then why don't you, over this Advent season, when we are thinking about God writing himself into the world, why don't you think about the person of Jesus? Why don't you take time to explore what he is like, what he shows us about God? I think if you are interested in Christianity, focus on him. It all stands or falls on him. Because if Jesus was a good guy, a good teacher with some good ideas, but he was not actually God in flesh, then his view of what God is like could be just as biased as anyone else. But if he really is the creator God, the pursuing God who has written himself into the story to rescue us through relationship with him, then that tells us so much more about God than we could ever learn from anywhere else. So through this Advent season, if you have questions, why don't you read the stories of Jesus? You can find them in the Gospels, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of his life. You can find the Christmas stories particularly in Matthew and Luke, but read any of the four of them and reflect on the kind of God that they depict. It may well be different to anything you've ever thought of when you have pictured God before. And as we've already said, we will be celebrating this moment in the story when God wrote himself into our world at the carol service on December 11th. You would be more than welcome to come and explore this further. We'd love to have you here. There will be performance songs, lots of songs to sing, mulled wine, mince pies, and I won't be talking. So it will be a great, great event, and you will be more than welcome. And if you have any questions today, I know I have raised some big thoughts and I haven't had time to deal with them all. Come and talk to me. I would love to talk to you, answer any questions you have. I will be eating cake with the kids upstairs and you, I'd love to chat to you further. But we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song about this pursuing God and the love that he has for us before David comes to close in prayer. So why don't you stand and let's sing together. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit christchurchlondon.org.